Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuham. With Tamson and Dan read the paper uh, Sunday, August 22nd. Okay, I believe that. Uh, hurricane Henry in the area, sort of. Yes, right. Yeah. Well, it's, it's hitting, not much of a hurricane, really. Well, unless you're in Block Island, it might be a little more of a hurricane, but we're not in Block Island. Well, I think it was downgraded to a tropical storm, yes, actually. Yes, yes, you're right. You're on uh, top of things. But, but in any case... If we were on Block Island right now, we'd be sunk. We'd be probably uh, saying, wait a minute, we're supposed to go home on the ferry today and all the ferries were canceled. That's right. And, you know, that's actually a real mess because you rent a house and if someone shows up to take over the house, uh, you have no place to stay. That's right. So I don't know how they're going to work no, that out. No, but nobody could get there. Yeah. The ferries were I, closed. I understand, but sometimes people were there. You know, some people, some well, people anyway. were there too. Plus, uh, how do you get a ferry reservation the next day? Maybe you can't. I don't know. They must have some way of dealing with it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm just, it's not what the right What do you right think? Day. People just have to spend the rest of their lives on Block Island? The rest of their lives. Just because of one little Henry? It's a, It could be worse. But uh, listen, I'm glad we're not on Block Island during such an event. I mean, it must be. There's uh, no well, swimming today. We we've been on Block Island during hurricane season. Yes. With you know crazy storms. Well, look, we're trying. But to no re- real hurricanes. We were trying to remember. They, as soon as they said that no hurricane for thirty years, I said, "Well, I remember Hurricane Bob." I think we were on Block Island. And, and it turns, turns out, out you were imagining that. Well, I wasn't imagining Hurricane Bob. I got the name of it right away, and it was the thirty-year uh, distant hurricane. And I thought we were on Block Island, but you swear we were not. So uh, we don't know. We'll never know. If we find out, we'll let you know. You would think uh, that would be a memorable event. I, I think if we just look at my old uh, canceled checkbook, yeah, let's, let's we'll do know. It. But we haven't done that yet. No. Okay. Let's let's get on that. All right. So uh, there was an article that you had found that uh, kind of startled me. I'd kind of not paid much attention to it. Uh, but but the, it makes perfect sense. Well, it does, but... Well, let, let's tell you what it is. It's called My Secret Life Working Remotely at Two Jobs. From the, the Wall Street Journal. And it is about exactly what it indicates, which is the notion that there are people out there who are taking advantage of remote work by working two jobs simultaneously. Well, generally two jobs simultaneously. And... Um, yeah, there's clearly an opportunity uh, that previously did not exist to do that type of thing. So you say, okay, I, I can see theoretically how someone might do that, but really? And it turns well, out... Well, is it illegal? No. But... but, uh, but then, I mean, and, it's got to be... But before we get to that, okay, okay? Uh, before you even think about it, I'm saying to myself, is this just, you know, someone has a funny idea or is there any reality to it? And the, the Wall Street Journal article happens to be pretty seriously reported... And they actually had verified numerous situations with the cooperation of the people involved, uh, putting forward evidence demonstrating that they were, in fact, working two jobs. This is a thing. It's not something that someone made up in the Wall Street Journal editorial room. I mean, it's a thing, Um, which is crazy. I mean, is it illegal? No, it's not illegal. But why would it be illegal? It, It might uh, get you fired. As a matter of fact, I'm sure it would get you fired. Well, if you, uh, but, I mean, if you have a contract with yeah, someone, you get you fired. That's all. Okay. Nothing else would happen. But uh, you know, um, there's a lot there. I mean, first of all, the fact that people can get away with it as easily as they can, and they do interview a bunch of people who talk about experiences, and they swear it's just not that hard to do. 
uh, primarily because they feel that, particularly with remote work, not a lot is expected of people. And there's a way to sort of dodge things so that uh, you don't have to deliver too much in the way of work. Uh, and it makes it possible, right? It, it makes it almost easy to do. I wouldn't say easy. Yeah. I mean, they had some people. It seems easy for some people, and for other people, they're working like a hundred hours a week. No, that's one person but, at the end uh, working hundred hours a week. But that's the that's. that's but here's person. the thing: yeah. they, they say it was sort of irresistible because uh, one twenty-nine-year-old uh, software engineer they're talking to estimates when when he had the one job, he was logging three. To ten hours of actual work yeah. per week. Right. The rest of it, he said, was attending meetings and pretending to look busy. Right. Well, that's so. Pro- if that's the case. Yeah. Why not? Well, I, I can give you reasons why not. But if that's the case, you're thinking that somebody should be doing more than one, uh, three yeah. to ten hours. And look. It, First of all, let's be clear what kind of jobs we're talking about. According to the journal, they're talking about real jobs. They're talking about jobs where. Between the two jobs, the person's making uh, several hundred thousand dollars a year. So we're not talking about menial jobs. We're talking about high-paying jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, to do a good job in that kind of appointment, you do have to spend a fair bit of time. So what the issue that's being explored here is whether you can skate by, right, doing what's called not a good job, but just enough not to get you fired, and by putting in, as he puts it, three to ten hours a week. And can you? I guess you can. I, for a lot, of, for a lot of jobs, you obviously can. That's the point of the article: not to be a star, not to even do a good job, but to do a good enough job not to get you fired. Yeah, you can mail it in and and manage uh, a little enough time that you're actually putting your nose to the grindstone, such that you can handle another appointment at the same time. Well, but I have to think yeah. that uh, in an office setting, there is a lot of wasted time. Yes, there probably so, is. So I, you know, not, I think, so I think to some extent, he likes to think he's just cutting out the fat no, or cutting out. That's not true. I mean, first of all, uh, you, I don't think you can get away with this in an office setting. Number one, and number two, and it's you. If if someone no, said, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is, by being at home, yeah, you don't have all that uh, wasted time in the office. Yeah, chit chatting by the water cooler. That's not that much time. Messing around. That's not that much. Time. You know, you know. Please give me I'm a break. I'm telling here. you, it's not okay. I'm um, you it's not. But there, and also, and, and what about the meetings? The meetings. Uh, He's saying for he, many people feel that meetings in general are wasted time. Well, I don't know what kind of job he has. There's there's certainly a lot of jobs that meetings are wasted time. There's a lot of administrative work that uh, that you know can occupy your day if you let it occupy your day. Administrative obligations, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't say obligations. I was famous for, for just saying I'm not going to that meeting. I'm not participating in that phone call. I mean, I remember saying to people, somebody, look, I'm I not filling out that survey. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I right. remember saying, All right. well, so well, well, let me just finish my point. I've said more than once to people, so I can do one of two things. I can do what you want me to do for this administrative stuff or I can do my job. It's one of those two. And I was senior enough that I could get away with that. Right. But that's clearly the perspective. I can see you're taking you the hard line here. Well, I, 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 you know, what? I have been outside of the law firm. Yeah. Okay. I have seen other corporations. All right. And, I, and I'm aware of how people are working. Yeah. All right. And I will say that very few people that I see yeah. are busy 
every minute. No, I didn't with say busy every work. minute. I didn't say okay? busy every with minute. With the work. Yeah. So I think there is potential for Yeah, having, you can do it. For having more than one job to do. Yeah. Well, they have some tips. They give you some tips. But, but anyway, the, but, but, but before you get to the tips, yeah. I mean, right. um, so the, the challenges are that um, how do you keep all this separate? Yeah. And how do you, and what if you do have two Zoom meetings yeah. scheduled at the same time? Right. Now, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that happened, you know, what are the odds that that's going to happen a lot? But uh, um, people somehow manage, they talk, uh, set up one Zoom call on the phone right. and the other Zoom call on the computer. One guy is quoted here as hiring an assistant who alerts him. If there's anything going on at the meeting that he needs to uh, participate in, et cetera, and so forth. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, for some people, it seems like a win-win. They're doing their work. They're getting twice as much money. Okay. They're being able to pay their bills, pay off yeah, I'm telling uh, you. their debts, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. You, and you don't approve. They're not doing their work. How do you know they're not doing their because work? Because I'm reading the article. They're not doing their work. They're doing the minimum. They're doing the minimum. There's a way to get by in a lot of corporations, a lot of large organizations, that you're not doing a good job, but it's a real chore to be terminated. No one's going to terminate you, but you're mailing it in. You're doing a bad job. You can do that. That's all these people are aspiring to do. But okay? what if your work is, you know... I'm not going to say uh, piecemeal, but I mean, if if you're if you have particular assignments yeah. that you complete right. adequately within the amount of time you're supposed to, yeah, um, you know, and you still have other time. I, I don't think you know that's not what salaried work is about generally. I mean, uh, piecework, part time, yes, but not salaried work. Mm -hmm. uh, look. Well, they imply here that generally remote workers have time to go to the beach and do all kinds of crazy things they don't have to account for. Well, they for. do have... The, so why not have it be something more industrious, like another job? I understand they have time for it, but I'm telling you they're not doing a good job. You, you have to distinguish between what it takes to do a good job on the one hand and what it takes to do the minimum to get by. And you can do the minimum to get by in remote work and still go to the beach. I believe that. I'm not disputing that. But I, I don't think... We should kid ourselves that, oh, see, it turns out you can do a good job and, and have another job besides. You can't. All right? You just can't. Um, I mean, the kind of advice they give is how you get away with it. There's no point to dwell on it because we're not recommending it particularly. But they're the kind of, what they're doing is they're exploiting, and this, I can, and this is not terribly unfair. They're exploiting the things about the workplace which don't make sense. The notion that People schedule meetings by looking at the Outlook calendar and they say, you're automatically you're at this meeting because I see there's a block of time on your Outlook calendar, you're scheduled. They're saying, you don't have to do that meeting. Just tell them no. That's good advice generally. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's for managing your schedule. It's got nothing right, to do okay. with doing this. Right. Uh, and there are other good advice too. You know, this doesn't work with everything. He said, they say here, avoid startups, which is a proxy for saying, avoid jobs where they're really looking for you to perform and they're counting on your work to succeed. Avoid that because if you're in that kind of job, you can't do this mm -hmm. because they're counting on you to do a good job. So in any event, yeah, you can exploit the situation because you can mail it in in a lot of jobs and remote uh, makes it easier to mail it in. 
I well, I'm just going to disagree. I think there are there are jobs that you can do a good job. It probably doesn't take uh, quite you know fifty or sixty hours a week. No, it takes forty. Uh, maybe it doesn't even take forty no. if you work hard. Maybe if you take out all the you know maybe maybe, but it didn't seem like that. It, it particularly, I I don't see how you could hold two jobs. I just don't think you can responsibly do it. Well. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I think this is going to happen more and more. Yeah, but look, I, I, so you read the article because differently than are, I do. You read the article saying here's potential, and I read the article and say there's a scam. Yeah, I don't know if it's a scam. The the thing I'm thinking about is uh, the opposite side of the coin, where you're you know you um, you're working so hard for these companies, you're putting in your time, and you're not necessarily going to get that promotion. Right. And uh, you know and your boss is completely comfortable with uh, making you, you know, work as hard as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, why not, you know... Uh, get a new get, job. Yeah, well, yeah. or get something, you know, get more for your Be, uh, input. You know, you said before, is it illegal? Uh, it's not illegal. Uh, is it immoral? Yes. Because it, it's immoral in a sense because you're you're hiding it from your employer. It's not like you're saying to him, hey, listen, you know, I'm doing the job. Just so you know, I got plenty of time. I got extra time. I'll be, you know, I'll be earning some uh, money on this side hustle. No one's saying that. You're yeah. doing it on the sly. Yeah, I, I still think we're not quite getting it. What does that mean? Because I think, uh, in I keep thinking about um, my profession teaching. Yeah. Okay. Where years ago people were full time uh, teachers yeah. in college. Right. Okay. Now that's the exception to the rule. Right. They expect you. To be an adjunct, okay, which means you need to teach a bunch of places. Right. Um, so I think that's going to But that's all happen above in board, more places. but they know you're doing that. Yeah. You were doing that, and you were I, telling well, them, maybe, I'm doing that. Yeah. So that's totally cool. Uh, that's a completely different thing from this. These people are hiding it. And they're taking jobs in which uh, the assumption is that they're dedicating the large part of their day and most of their energies from the work perspective, to this job. That's the assumption upon which they were, are getting paid. And they're, at the same time, violating that understanding and taking money from someone else and putting time and effort that they might otherwise put to their original employer. That's duplicitous. So all people who have two jobs are bad guys. If it's, There's a simple test. If there, It's got to be a secret. Uh, it's a problem. That's all. Wow. All right? But let me, let me give you exactly the reverse situation. All right. I know you think I'm a hard guy. Here's the here's the reverse situation. The article that we mentioned last week about this fellow named William Lawrence, who was a science reporter for the Times and was such a prominent reporter uh, during the wartime years and even post wartime years into the 60s, that when he passed away uh, in, in the 70s and 80s or whatever, his obituary is on the front page of the newspaper. Okay, so this is not an obscure person. Okay. Well, apparently there's, 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 I think there's two books now that are being written about this fellow, William Lawrence, uh, in which they are exposing that, uh, you know, he, uh, I should all read, read the way the Times describes it, that he was, he was duplicitous. I said he flourished during a freewheeling, rough and tumble era, both as a Times newsman and a bold accumulator of outside pay from the government. All right. Uh, government agencies that he was supposed to be covering. 
The implication being that he's one of these guys with two jobs that were a conflict of interest. There's only uh, one problem with the story and that he told everybody about it. Not only did he tell everybody about it, but the Times was excited about it. What happened was during the uh, Manhattan Project, when they were developing the atomic bomb, the folks of the government running the Manhattan Project came to the New York Times and they said, you know, this fellow Lawrence is, uh, we like the way he writes. He seems to understand scientific things. It's an important for our mission in terms of the wartime effort in developing the atomic bomb that we have articles in newspapers which are explaining to the populace what we're doing so that they're comfortable with it and that they get behind it. And we would like to uh, have him work for us at the same time he works for the New York Times. And you know what the Times said? They said, we're honored. That's great. But then... <laughs> <laughs> all so, right? So, the so there's nothing is... duplicitous about it. All right? Now... Except that he's just doing PR for the well, he's writing, Manhattan Project. Well, it's not the same article fulfilling both things. He's writing for the government on the one hand, and he's writing for the Times on the other. But, as you say, maybe he's going to see things the government's way, because he's uh, sort of taking money for the government, right? And then he sees their point of view. Uh, the article here in the book that's upcoming says that, gee, you know, uh, this was not a violation of ethical standards at the time. But when looked at by subsequently uh, developed ethical standards, it would be a violation. So it's problematic. Okay. Here we see, you see this in this cultural discussion all the time. This guy, Lawrence, is being criticized because his conduct was not consistent with ethical standards promulgated 25 years after he did what he did, which is nuts, okay? Mm. Especially since, again, the Times says, great, we are honored to have this guy doing this. Now, what issue did he cover that he uh, might have covered differently? They said, well, he was not as harsh as he could have been or should have been, perhaps, in terms of the deleterious effects of the atomic bomb, particularly with respect to radiation effects, there was a concern on the government's part that people would have been terribly put off horrified by the idea that they were exposing the Japanese population to this. Uh, and it's one thing to kill people with a big explosion. It's another thing to kill people by radiation. And this was what the PR part of the government was concerned about, supposedly. This is bullshit. Okay, well, I'm telling you, this is what the story is. And that what, what this guy, what Lawrence but did, and he downplayed the radiation effects. He's, because they told him to. And, so and he's not a him. real reporter, is he? I, well, not, I, I explained the precise situation to you. Whether he's a real reporter or not, you have to, to judge. But that's what he—that's what he apparently did, and that's what he's well, being criticized for. Yeah, but that doesn't seem ethical in any year. Yes. Well, first of all, I'm sure he didn't understand it anyway, honestly. But here, you say that. You sure he didn't understand it? Yeah, a lot Does of radiation didn't. sound benign. <laughs> you know something? You know what happens? Even even when I was a little peanut. Yeah. And I and uh, you would get X-rays for yeah. your teeth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Didn't your dentist put on a lead okay. apron? Let me tell you, you know? something. Which, let me do the math for you. When you were a little peanut and the apron came on, all right, it was almost 1960. All right. The this bomb was dropped in 1945 uh, or 1944, perhaps I can't remember which year. And what happened was where everyone became aware of radiation with respect to the bomb was when John Hershey's book came out, Hiroshima, in 1946, 
and it didn't really go into detail with the effects of radiation, which frankly people and, told, be, and nobody suspected before. I wouldn't before say no that. one suspected it because people like this were writing stories. Okay, that, you know how could it hurt? It's well, only hold, radiation. Hold, hold on for a second. Okay, first of all, to be clear, I, I don't. I don't want to say he didn't understand. I said he may not have understood it. I don't know what he understood. Okay. Number two, I take your point that he was really more than happy to put it the way the government wanted it to be put. I don't think he thought he was lying necessarily, but I'm sure he was more than happy to deliver what the government wanted delivered. But let me make this observation, okay? They hadn't. There's an interview in 2009 with Arthur Gelb, uh, was the former managing editor of the Times, okay? Right. And he had joined the paper in 1944, and he was familiar with Lawrence. This is in 2009. And he was confronted with this situation with Lawrence. He's looking back at what this fellow did during the World War and his reporting and his underplaying radiation. Uh, don't you th think that that was an awful thing to do? And this is what Arthur Gelb said of the Times in 2009. Quote, we were fighting a war for survival. No one thought of Lawrence as a villain. That's ridiculous. He was a hero. So, you know... I'm not gonna. I'm not coming down one way or another on this, uh, but it is kind of interesting. Uh, number one, because again, all this was out in the open, and people said fine. So there you have that. And number two, maybe it's a little different when you're fighting a war for survival. Maybe it was easy to say, "Hey, we're all in this well, together." Well, we can discuss whether we were fighting a war for survival. Well, World War Two. Uh, we, we can discuss that, but I, I but I think uh, I think most people look at it that way. But in any event, um, that's uh, that was the perspective that Arthur Gelb had, and it's just what it really demonstrates to me is people look at things differently in different contexts, and that's clearly the way to look at it in, in, during the wartime effort in the '40s. The idea of the press linking arms with the government and maybe saying, "Listen." Whatever we can do to help the wartime effort, uh, not so odd, not so weird. That's just a different in, world. Including just making it up. I, I look. I'm telling you. It, 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 all that just all that just points out is that you can't really believe anything the government tells you about what's going on. Well, yes, but there, even if they have a that's very a, first of all a very uh, respected reporter no, no, no. passing it on. I think it's always been clear you, you can never trust the government to describe what's going on. The, the harder question is, can you trust the press? That that's what this that's okay. the question is. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So go ahead. Enough of that. Uh, Hetty Anderson. You're going to talk about. Yeah, I mean, not that you've ever heard of Hetty Anderson, neither have I. Um, but uh, and part of the um, series that the Times is, uh, you know, trying to, um, I guess, uh, unearth interesting stories. Yeah. About uh, people from the past on their obituary page, people who didn't make the Times obituaries um, when they died. Uh, and now seem worthy of mention. And Hetty Anderson, one of those people, uh, she uh, lived from 1873 to 1938, and uh, she was a sculptor's model. In fact, mm -hmm. she was the model for um, several big names during the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. Daniel Chester French, I mean, you know him, yes. the big uh, Lincoln, Lincoln right. uh, memorial sculpture, um, Augustus St. Gaudens, and uh, others, including uh, Adolf Alexander uh, Weinman, uh, 
who uh, actually designed uh, quite a few of the uh, coins, medals, and things we know today. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, what's one of the things that's interesting about her is uh, she was African American. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you you hear about these famous models, and they're modeling. For in the case of the Augusta St. Gaudens, uh, most famous uh, depiction of her was in uh, the um, equestrian statue in the Grand Army Plaza in uh, Brooklyn. You know, and there's uh, Sherman is riding a uh, horse, mm-hmm. and in front of him is Nike, uh, the winged goddess of victory, okay. uh, leading mm-hmm. uh, the way, and. That is uh, modeled on Hetty Anderson. Now, mm. Hetty was born in uh, South Carolina, Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, her with the name Harriet Eugenia Dickerson. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, her mother was Caroline Scott, her father was Benjamin Dickerson, um, and uh, they uh, were designated. They people have done research and found that uh, they were listed in a census as free colored persons. They owned land and earned wages. But it says here, but the brutal enforcement of Jim Crow laws in the South and financial hardship eventually drove Anderson and many of her relatives northward. Um, And uh, so she and her mother uh, head to New York Mm -hmm. and they actually change their surname uh, to Anderson. So she's gone from Dickerson to Anderson and it looks like, in general, uh, they were passing as white, mm-hmm. okay. um, which we've heard other stories mm-hmm. uh, of that happening during that period as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, in any case, um, she was uh, she held various jobs, but she also studied at the Art Students League, and uh, artists became familiar with her and used her as a model. Um, People like, you know, uh, St. Gaudens was head over heels about her. Mm -hmm. I really felt she was uh, one of the most beautiful um, people, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the most beautiful bodies Mm -hmm. he had ever seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, But, of course, what's interesting here is she's being used as a model for a very sort of uh, classical image Mm -hmm. of beauty a classical sort of European uh, image of beauty um, and uh, is, uh, you know, a um, icon of that. So she, she seems to have been quite an interesting character. Uh, and um, uh, she actually, uh, after St. Gaudens dies, she copyrights his bronze bust of her. Mm-hmm. Okay, meaning only she has the right to have, um, you know, future images, future um, right. sculptures uh, that made from like that. that. Right. right, you know, because sculpture in general, it can be reproduced, right, right as a bronze or, or whatever. And uh, she wanted to be able to control that. His, St. Gaudens family had wanted to, you know, make many more and mm-hmm. sell them. She refused. She, she thought it would be more valuable if there was only one. Mm. I'm not sure that's really uh, how that necessarily works. But uh, when that bus is actually delivered uh, to um, 
St. Gaudens family instead of her, she flips out. So I think it's interesting that she had such a, you know, kind of strong idea about how she wanted to um, maintain her image and, and maintain the value of her image. Um, so there are, anyway, she's a um, very interesting person. Uh, there are also depictions of her at, uh, in a mural mm-hmm. in uh, Bowdoin. Uh, uh, college. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, painted by John Lafarge, who uh, uh, was uh, another great uh, sort of uh, decorative artist of the time, also did uh, fantastic mm-hmm. stained glass windows, etc. Um, and in that one, she is uh, kind of a, um, a nymph being uh, painted, uh, being depicted by uh, the... Um, goddess Minerva. Anyway, uh, Bowdoin is about to have an exhibition. There is a woman in every color, black woman in art, and uh, that um, mural will be highlighted. and She'll be uh, one of the stars of that. Um, but uh, there we have Hetty Anderson. Interesting story, beautiful image, um, and we probably see her uh, more often than we realize because she was so popular in all these uh, mm-hmm. neoclassical depictions of goddesses and etc. Bowden, huh? Bowden, everywhere. Yep. Good. Uh, all right. So here is, uh, I started to tell you about this, and, and you told me that uh, this is a hard sell, that you weren't that interested, but that's okay. Some people might be. MLB. Uh, is sponsoring and has sponsored for some years uh, a game, a contest that you can get on the MLB website. And here's the way the contest works. It's based on Joe DiMaggio's famous 56-game hitting streak, which I think you've heard of. Uh, Well, I certainly have by today. Yeah, I think you had heard of it. It's one of the great feats in in modern sports. I understand he, he was a great player. He well, wasn't just... Uh, just so we're clear. He, that means he got a... Sidekick hit. of Marilyn Monroe. No, it's no. true enough. He got a yeah. hit in 56 games in a row. And it's a streak that's never been broken, never really approached. I think the second Certainly most, not like, by anybody on the Mets. No, not by anyone on the Mets. Uh, 44 might be the second highest. I think that's the National League streak. Um, 56 games is, is, is incredible. Uh, and I think he did that in 1941. So here, here's the interesting thing about it. And this demonstrates how incredible it is. The MLB, the Major League Baseball contest, is this. They're challenging people to get on their own 56-game hitting streak. And, what, and the way that, mean, that works is this. That as you, as a participant in the game, can designate a player any day, any player in the Major Leagues, who you believe will get a hit that day. And if that player gets a hit, that contributes to your streak. If the player doesn't, your streak is broken. And the question is, can you, on that basis, maintain a streak of 56 straight games? I think with a little collusion, you could. What do you mean a little collusion? What collusion would that be? Like, you know, before the game, you go up to the opposing pitcher <laughs> and you say, you know, yeah. I'm trying to do this thing. Yeah. Okay. There's money in this for all of us. It would well, not be such a big deal. One little hit. Yeah. You know, maybe would that kill you? Okay, well, let me explain this so you know how much there is. Maybe there's more to what you're saying than you realize. Do you know what the prize is if you get this done 56 times in a row? Yeah. Guess. Do you know what the amount is? No. It's 5.6 million dollars. 
And was, uh, you know, my, my <laughs> point <laughs> exactly. exactly. Your point exactly, right. So no one, uh, they have some tips as to how you might do this, but this has been going on for years, uh, several years, and the closest someone's come is like 50 games, uh, which is close, but no one's been able to do it. And many, 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 many have tried. Uh, I think uh, 4.5 million people have tried and they have failed. Um, 4.5 people have tried. 4.5 million people have tried. Have tried to pick a guy who will get the hits? No, have tried to get a 56-game streak and have failed. They haven't gotten 56 in a row. There are 4.5 million professional baseball players? No, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Participants in the game. 4.5 million people have played the MLB contest. That's what I just asked you. It has nothing to do with the number of players in the league. No, no, no. I said they're trying to pick the guy. Yeah. no, they're 4.5 million people have tried to pick the right guy. Yeah. Trying to pick a, 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 just so we're clear, have tried to pick a guy who will get a hit 56 games in a row. Will be right, a different guy right. each That's week. exactly what I said. Oh, well, I, uh, not exactly, but fine. <laughs> fine. <laughs> okay. It's hard to do. It's hard to, and yet DiMaggio did it all by himself. That's the point. I, I, can we? We can probably pick a million things that are hard to do and make a game about uh, trying to do it. Right? It's amazing that you can't do it. They're giving you every player in the league. You can say, you know, I want Otani today. He gets a hit all the time. I'll take Otani tomorrow. I'll take, uh, you know. I think you can do it. I'll all you Alonzo need is a little cooperation. Well, absent the cooperation, let me give you a few tips. Suggestion comes to you, and these are things that wouldn't necessarily hurt you. Number one. You don't want someone who walks because a walk narrows the possibilities in terms of him getting a hit. You want him to get as many at-bats as possible, right? You don't want uh, someone who's going to get hit by a pitch because that's not going to help you either. You have to pick someone on the visiting team because the visiting team bats nine times every game. The home team sometimes only bats eight times, all right? You have to bat someone at the top of the line, take someone at the top of the lineup, usually the leadoff hitter. These are all the things that will narrow it down for you and will heighten your chances of choosing on that particular Daniel, day someone who will get a hit. Daniel, what? You can only pick the one guy. I understand. Sometimes he's not going to be playing at home. No, no, no. You not, can pick a different guy every game. Oh, you pick a different guy? Yeah, that's I, what I'm trying I'm to get I'm not getting this at all. Yeah, that's what I thought. You can pick a different guy every game. Yeah. You just have to have that guy that day get a hit. Oh, so it's not one person who gets 56 No, no, no. It's just picking... Yeah, any day. You can pick anybody you want that day. And you just have to be right I 56 times in a row. I think that's just an room. insult to Joe DiMaggio. It's not, why is it an insult to Joe DiMaggio? Because, you know, he did this all on his love. Well, my point is that even it doesn't sound hard. It doesn't sound hard. You can pick any major league that day. It's easy. That guy will get a hit. That guy will get a hit. Look who's pitching today. It figures you can do it. But it turns out that you can't. That's what makes it amazing. You know what's great about sports is Wait. the sports. Yes. Not the people sitting in chairs deciding... You know what the athletes. Well, believe me, these guys who have picked twenty-five doing. in a row, they're sitting there sweating it out, and they're watching they're sports. They're sweating it out, making the picks. Oi! And then they're Oy. watching the people bat. And they're watching the people bat. It's it has it. You know something? You know what you're gonna. You know what's gonna pass you by? I'll tell you right what? now. Sports gambling. You are not gonna be on that train. I'm which, just which saying, is coming into the station. No, you're just. It's just that you seem to be equating the sports gambler with the sportsman. I'm not equating it. I just think, okay? I think it like sounds... It's something, you know, to I'm, achieve. I'm not equating it. But what I'm saying is it sounds to me like it should be easy and it's not. It turns out it's impossible. Number one, 
it's hard to actually do that. To do what? Get the hit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. And you're talking about, and it's really hard to know if somebody's going to get a no, hit. No, no. I, I, I thought it would be easy, but it's not. The mathematics proves it's not. They say the chance of getting it is something like 10 million to one. I just, all right. Lovely. It's about math, Tim, and it's not about baseball. Sorry to disappoint you. It's really about math. All right. So, you know, a minute ago, we were talking about Hetty Anderson, who was African-American. Yeah. And yet served as an icon of beauty by, you know, standards that aren't really African-American. You know, um, what's interesting here in my next story, it's about uh, daguerreotypes of black African Americans. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's fun about daguerreotypes is, you know, it's it's an early photographic uh, process. So, you know, in France, it gets um, patented in 1839. Okay. Once by daguerre. Right? Daguerreotype. Got it. Okay. Once that happens, it democratizes portraiture. Okay. Right. To have a portrait made of you, you had to be a rich person who could hire an artist, Mm -hmm. whether it's a full sized uh, painting or even a miniature. Okay. Once you have photography, you know, this is affordable to everybody. For mm-hmm. a couple of, in France, for a couple of francs, you could get a portrait done. And once um, photography starts, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's going into it because you don't need to be an artist. It's a slightly um, deadly process, mm-hmm. uh, but many, many people go into it, so it's very available, mm-hmm. right? So there should be portraits of African Americans. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now um, a great collection. Yeah. The collection of Larry J. West yeah. has been purchased by the Smithsonian. Um, and uh, it's a group of 286 objects. Mm-hmm. Uh, West collected daguerreotypes. He has zillions of them, but mm-hmm. he was very interested. One of the first ones he bought was of an African-American man in a tuxedo, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, of course, this dates from the 19th century. And he was fascinated, and uh, he spent a lifetime uh, collecting these uh, daguerreotypes, ambrotypes. Ambrotype is uh, a um, basically a daguerreotype, but it's printed on glass, uh, so you could flip it around because daguerreotypes are always, um, you know, backwards, so to speak, but we'll go into that another time. Um, Also, he collected um, photographic jewelry. So there would be miniature little photographs that would be made into a brooch, and maybe on the back of the brooch is little snippets of the beloved's hair, uh, etc. So there are all these objects, and uh, the big excitement is there are 40 daguerreotypes. Not only um, uh, was he interested in... uh, black uh, um, portraits, but also the photographers. Um, so he uh, had a 40 daguerreotypes by 
the three prominent black photographers of the 19th century, James P. Ball, Glenn Alvin Goodridge, and Augustus Washington, who uh, had thriving uh, businesses uh, and uh, did portraits of uh, both uh, white and black um, clients, etc. So this is... But again, what interests me is part of what we're going to see here is we see black people as black people, mm-hmm. not posing, you know, to uh, um, fulfill someone else's ideal of what beauty is, but as themselves, with their families. There are wonderful uh, family groups, almost, uh, you know, not quite candids, uh, selfies as we would see them because the whole process during that period was so involved and, and you know required sitting very still etc but uh, it, it will really I think open the eyes and begin to um, uh, tell us more about not only the people posing but um, the photographers as well uh, about African Americans as um, entrepreneurs as um, you know participating in this new technology mm-hmm. both uh, from uh, you know the artistic point of view and uh, the consumer uh, side of it mm-hmm. uh, so that is uh, there's going to be um, a uh, what was I going to say something uh, anyway I'm excited to go to the Smithsonian and uh, see these uh, works and uh, see what they're going to open up in terms of our study of uh, um, black life and culture. Well, you know, it's funny. When you started talking about uh, the idea of going from painting to photography, although I appreciate that you're talking about daguerreotypes as sort of an early form of photography, and how it opened things up, I was reminded that uh, Chuck Close had died this week. Right. Which I'm sure you noticed. And Chuck Close... Uh, and you know much more about this than I do, but apparently was, to my understanding, was he was doing paintings that seemed to be photographs in, in large respect. I mean, his process was hyper-realistic. I'm sure there's a word for it. Uh, right. And then later he's also pixelating right. the large portraits. Right. To, so as know, if it's yeah. some kind of funny glass or something like that. Well, not funny glass, but it's as if you... Um, took a photographic image and enlarged it so much Mm -hmm. that uh, you're seeing the pixels that create that image. So, you know, there there are many levels of reality here that he's playing with. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's what you're talking about. I was showing you something on my phone. But, you know, it's funny. Maybe I should have pointed this out before. You know, the thing about, he was accused of um, inappropriate sexual conduct. And I think that kind of put... uh, cast some shade on his career toward the latter part of his career. I think you were familiar with that. Yeah, but here's what worries me about that. Yeah. And, uh, of course, um, there are a couple different aspects. One is, sadly, uh, he was diagnosed at first with Alzheimer's, but then it turned out to be frontal temporal dementia. Right, right. Okay. And uh, I will say, uh, having a close friend with uh, frontal temporal dementia, it can... Um, severely affect uh, your behavior and your um, idea yeah. of what's good, bad, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, it alters you in many ways. So I would not be. I have no idea. I don't know any no, his, anything his, about this. His doctor I, made I the same be, point. He yeah, said the same thing. I um, I would not be uh, surprised uh, that he had 
in many ways had no idea what he was right. doing or right. saying. Right. Um, because, uh, you know, I, I've heard uh, remarks. Um, yeah. I've talked, you know, talked with people um, who with the that type of dementia, yeah. who would never have said the things they said. No, I think you're exactly uh, right. I think you're exactly 20 years right. ago yeah. or, or whatever. So that's very sad. Um, and you hate to think of um, somebody's art being yeah. uh, kind of dissed mm-hmm. by yeah. that kind of focus on behavior. All right. But it, it does, but it still comes back to, um, are we able to appreciate the artist, the art, the regardless of the person, yeah. and that's a incredibly complex. Yeah, I mean, I thought discussion. I always thought his paintings were kind of interesting, but you know, I'm, I don't have the kind of background you have. I don't know, but um, you know, no, well, it's you know, it's especially interesting in the way it plays, kind of you know, backwards and forwards. Well, that's why I bring it up. Yeah. Maybe you're talking about Abstracting the other way. The yeah. rea- you know, it's it's realistic, but in an abstract sort of way, well, you, and right. uh, you know, playing, you know. Um, kind of imitating technology in a way. I, I, I mean, there are many different um, fun levels to looking at that. All right. So anyway, the final story here is has to do with the Washington football team. They're still trying to come up with a new name. Uh, and they are going out to the public and asking for suggestions. And they've narrowed it down to eight names, supposedly, although they say they're still open to other things. And those eight names would be the Armada, as in the Washington Armada, the Brigade, the Commanders, the Defenders, the Washington Red Hogs, which sounds like Redskins, the Washington Red Wolves, the Washington Presidents, and the Washington Football Team. So I don't know if you have any reaction to those, but uh, the, the Times try to examine different trends in different decades as to uh, what kind of names were considered uh, the right approach during various times of our sports history. Um, And nothing really comes out of that discussion that really uh, would uh, suggest a good name for the Washington team, except for one thing. It's apparently early on, uh, they go back to 1922, uh, they say they were, they were kind of freewheeling kind of the names that the teams were given. Uh, and there were a few examples they give. The Columbus Panhandles. Uh, apparently, West Virginia has a little panhandle. Uh, the Louisville Brex, which was short for Breckenridge, although they say that doesn't clear much up. And here's the one that's most interesting. The Dayton Triangles. They thought a shape would be interesting, the Dayton Triangles. So here, with that in mind, here's my candidate for the Washington football team. How about the Washington Pentagons? Huh? I think that's a fun idea, yeah. but it is associated with war, right? As are most of the Military. names. As was Armada. Yeah, that's why I don't think Armada would work either. Yeah. I don't think people are going to go for it. But that. you know, there's a lot of war terminology in football. I Maybe mean, we I should know. turn away, like blitz, yeah, you know, right. that kind of yeah, stuff. No, I, I get it. All right. No, I think it's pretty cute, pentagons. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe but, yeah, I don't know how many, you know, the, the problem is, I was just thinking they're probably going to go for something like Red Hogs. Don't they have the hog pen or something? Is that yeah, the Washington? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And you can sell a lot of toys. Yeah. 
with that character. Oh, you that's can't right. that's you can't right. you can't merchandise a Pentagon. Yeah. Or even an Armada. Yeah. You know, you know as well as you can. You bring up a good point because you did that story last week about the minor league teams and the aggressive That's animals. where I learned it. I learned it from you. <laughs> they would I think they would have won. They would have hired those guys. Brandios. That's what Washington. Get on the phone with these guys at Brandios. They'll come up with something. You can put aside the Armada and you can start making some money on T-shirts. That's our advice to you. And Washington. I don't think it really matters whether people like it. Nobody liked Gritty, and now he's a superstar. A superstar. So just you know, figure you out. Get, you can't get bigger. Figure out how you can uh, you're make your money, money and go. All right. All right. So uh, that's it this week. This is Tamsin Granger and Dan Apuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. We'll be back.